Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor, it is Thursday, November 19th. What's up? How we doing? Simon, are you being threatened with a lockdown in Ottawa? Because that is that is the hot news here in Toronto that we're going back into lockdown. Uh, no, Ottawa's actually doing pretty awesome when it comes to COVID cases. We weren't doing too good uh, maybe a month, month and a half ago. But I think we're back to like low double digits in terms of uh, new cases. So knock on wood, so far so good uh, for, for cases. But I know it's not going so well in Toronto. Yeah. That's uh, that's to say the least. All right, so we got some news. Uh, so we got a jam-packed show today. We're going to talk about news. Uh, starting off, West Fraser Timber Co., the very large lumber company in Canada, has struck an agreement to buy Norboard Inc. All stock deal worth four billion dollars. This deal makes sense. West Fraser Timber has been a really good company, uh, pretty strong growth overall. Uh, stocks kind of hung around, not done a whole lot. But again, would Braden ever touch this stock? No, it's commoditized. Uh, move on. And additionally, so uh, some other news, Constellation Software, they had this dividend that they were going to spin off with their Topicus business. So they were going to list shares of Topicus. And everyone's all excited because this is a fast-growing integrated software business. People thought this was a real value creation mechanism that Mark Leonard is at Constellation Software is very famous for these kinds of things. And uh, now that's not happening. And there, we're, we're now in a waiting period to see if they're going to be listing those shares. So that that is in a holding period. Simon, Bitcoin is on an absolute tear. What's going on here? You're, you, I'm the. We get pretty much the same opinion on everything. I'd say we're very, very aligned on our investing strategy. You're bullish on Bitcoin. I am still like the boomer who doesn't understand it. So uh, what's going on here? Why is this thing going to the moon? Um, yeah, so it's been a really good year for Bitcoin. Uh, to give everyone an idea, their year to year to date returns on Bitcoin is about one hundred and fifty percent. So that's nothing. That's a slightly better than the S and P five hundred. Um, and I think the reason being is people are uh, more and more people are seeing Bitcoin being adopted. Uh, more widespread a bit more mainstream um around the world so not only in north america but you can you're seeing more and more um people adopting especially in countries where uh the currency and the governments can be really trusted when it comes to their currency um and have a tendency to really devaluate so those citizens it just makes logical sense to uh go to uh bitcoin or cryptocurrency in, ge- in general but specifically bitcoin because it's a uh, it's it's it has has a, a track record so whether people want to admit it or not bitcoin was found in 2009 and yes it's been very volatile uh, it's been up and down it started very low uh, but 
I mean, there is a, a really a track record behind Bitcoin. Um, it is very secure. It's uh, decentralized, so it's not controlled by any entity. Um, and with the recent news, obviously, of uh, PayPal, but Square before that, uh, Square and their cash app, um, I think that's really put uh, fuel on the fire for Bitcoin. That's my personal opinion on uh, what has been driving the price specifically for the past two months. It's been, it's been really, really crazy and really interesting. So um, it's definitely been a really good investment for me um, and kind of goes back to what we were talking last week too when uh, I only have a small portion, um, a small position that I started initially in Bitcoin and it's grown into a decent one over time, but it goes to show that I knew Bitcoin would be a riskier investment, so I only put a small portion of my portfolio and it's worked out pretty well. Now it's, it's, it's coming a decent size, so it goes to show that when you invest in something that could be more volatile and riskier, um, you know, there's still a lot of upside that you can attain even with a small position. Um, so I wanted also to quick note on that. So if people are looking to uh, get exposure into Bitcoin, whether it's directly or indirectly um, and how you can go about that. So personally, uh, the site I've been using or the, the software has been uh, ShakePay. So it's a Canadian company. Uh, there is a transaction fee that's not very low of 1.7. 75% per transaction, but the, the convenience of it, you can do uh, interact key transfer. I've had really uh, good, um, really good success with them. So that that's the one I use personally, but uh, some of the other big platforms are Coinbase, Kraken, uh, Binance that are uh, pretty well reputated as well. So if people are looking to, to get started a little bit, those are, are some of the platforms you can look into. Um, and if you're looking to get exposure, but you don't want to be holding the, the cryptocurrency or Bitcoin um, specifically, uh, that's fine. You can actually, like I said, if you want to invest money in Square or PayPal, you'll get some indirect exposure with that. Another way to do so would be NVIDIA or AMD. Um, people might wonder a little why, because uh, when there's miners, so people creating the cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin, and I say cryptocurrencies because obviously Bitcoin is a, a type of crypto currency but there's all different kinds of them uh, but uh, Nvidia and AMD are actually power the chips or um, in the case of Nvidia the GPUs that are used to be mining or creating those uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency um, so that's another way if you want some exposure and one that I learned yesterday and I don't know if you knew about that one Braden before I texted you but Shopify actually allows uh, merchants to set up uh, within their stores to accept cryptocurrency payment so if uh, sellers want to accept bitcoin they can actually do it off of the uh, shopify platform so that's something really interesting that i didn't know um, shopify actually offered yeah and you bring up good points because you know shopify square paypal them offering this wh whether they b We'll talk about Square for uh, on another note because they're very bullish on Bitcoin. The CEO of of uh, Twitter and Square, Jack Dorsey, loves Bitcoin, and Square actually holds Bitcoin on their balance sheet. I'm not a huge fan of this, but this is something that they do. Uh, but those companies providing the merchant solution between it actually being used and have real utility makes me think. Am I missing something here? Like, is this is this going to 
just going to be one thing that I just wish I didn't miss out on or wish I didn't wish I paid more attention to. And when I see news come out or, or other companies kind of solve that merchant uh, consumer problem uh, that the same way that Visa and MasterCard solved the problem of merchants and consumers in digital payments and their meteoric rise because of that, it, it validates its legitimacy as a real thing. Now, it is way too volatile right now, in my mind, to be a functional currency, but this is this is legit. I mean, I, I don't know if these companies are using it to drive more top line because they're looking at it as another revenue stream. Probably, maybe. But that doesn't matter if it's actually providing the ecosystem for it to be functional. I mean, hey, I mean, it's this is pretty legit. So I can see why it's rising off that. So it'll be interesting to see how, how it all pans out. But in, in 2020, financial markets are insane anyway so i i don't know if i can see the forest from the trees with some of this stuff so uh back on that same note it's been a wild ride for retail um i live on queen street west in toronto which is where small business has traditionally thrived it's not uh it's a pretty sad place these days i mean small business retailers it's uh not been a good year for them i mean that's Everyone knows that they're all being replaced by uh, silly looking cannabis stores that can't differentiate each other from uh, what their real branding is. But that that's another uh, another show on its own. So what's going on with the big retailers there, Simon? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, it's been really a consistent, uh, you know, consistent story. So you have the big winners and the companies that really invested heavily in online uh in their online uh, present and multi-channel as well. So those companies are really thriving in the pandemic. So it's really the winners just keep on winning. And it's sad to see because like you just said, I live in an area that's uh, typically really booming in Ottawa as well, um, not too far from downtown. And that's one of the reasons why we actually bought here. And a lot of small retailers are struggling, unfortunately. Uh, but the big ones I'm thinking here, like Amazon, obviously, uh, but also Home Depot, Target, get in the u.s um lowe's is doing much better as well um i'm trying to think of other names in terms of retail but i guess etsy technically would fall under retail if you stretch it a little bit it's a platform um but all those those platforms that really invested before the pandemic started um and you can say they were they were prepared for it obviously they probably didn't see a pandemic come uh but those are just the big winners are keeping on winning and unfortunately the old school not necessarily only the small merchants but also the the big department stores are really struggling and one canadian one that uh, i wonder about and i i don't know if it's still publicly listed but you know like if the bay is publicly still publicly listed i know sears and the bay have both just evaporated in terms of value yeah and i mean the bay is just a good example right it kind of represents the whole like jc penny macy's and all that in the u.s and canada we have the bay and i was talking to uh to my girlfriend about that i'm like you know what i i don't see the bay being still a company in like five to ten years from now i just i don't know i don't find it attractive to go there myself they're merchandise 
uh, typically is not great but also i think their website's not great and i just wonder if they'll really be able to to survive uh, you know much beyond the pandemic um, that's that's just me maybe i'm completely wrong but it, it i kind of have them in that bucket of uh, retail losers if you'd like yeah, there, there's a big bucket of, of these retail losers, and it really comes down to what you mentioned is, did they invest in that omni-channel experience? And if they did, they're probably coming out of this 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 well, and if they were companies that were well-capitalized enough, they could, they could figure it out quick enough to get this omni-channel experience off the ground and and try to catch up at least. Um, and so it's, it's unfortunate, but the big winners keep getting bigger. Uh, I've seen memes of, you know, like here's Jeff Bezos crushing every small business in America <laughs> and it'll be like his face on top of like Mike Tyson. And, um, I mean, it's, it's sad, but it's, it's just the reality of, of what's going on. All right. Enough of the depressing news. Let's. Let's go on a bit of a rant here, Simon, because <laughs> we did last episode about well health. We kind of left the episode with, okay, sure, uh, they have this digital wing uh, that does about 20% of their revenue. The other 80% is 19 health clinics in Vancouver. So we, we, we kind of left it with, okay, does this business really deserve a 34 X or what it probably more. I think it was like 46 X sales multiple. I don't have it here in front of me, but whatever it is, it's a lot. Uh, does this business really warrant this really, really high, uh, multiple business that you expect high margins, you expect recurring revenue, you expect exceptional software technology. And well, when you dig into it is not that at all. It's mostly a clinic business, uh, that's, simply does not warrant this kind of multiple. So that's kind of where we left it. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And uh, whoa, they, we, there's more to say. I'll just put it that way. There's more to say. And this is, this is part two of we did a little bit more digging. Uh, and today I just couldn't believe some of the history of this business. So let me just preface it with this. This company's very good at finding good PR. Uh, if you Google the company, there'll be uh, websites and you know, very legitimate news sources saying Well Health Technologies is revolutionizing healthcare. Um, and so let me take a step back. So this is a TSX stock. If you didn't listen to the episode last week, it's a TSX stock, well.to, trades on the TSX, and they're a Vancouver-based company. Okay, so... They're very good at getting PR, and they're very good at selling some mission statement. So I'll, I'll start there. This company actually, in 2015, raised a ton of money, over $600 million in Vancouver for a lifestyle yoga business called Canada Yoga Inc., okay? And Wellness Lifestyle Inc. is what it became. Um, and then a few years later, so they, they were trying to make all these acquisitions in yoga and, and lifestyle. 
And, well, that doesn't exist anymore. So you can just figure out how that went. Later, 2018, they changed the name to Well Health Technologies, okay? Notice how they throw in the technologies because they want high they want high multiples on this business, of course. So they went from this yoga apparel business that is trying to uh, you know follow the steps of Lululemon to raising tons of cash, moving on to the TSX venture, uh, doing this reverse takeover with uh, with a VC. And then buying health clinics in 2018. February 2018, they bought six health clinics. Uh, Later that year, they bought 13 clinics on August 18th. And then they started buying uh, medical record services. uh, All local to Canada and almost entirely local to British Columbia. So they were doing all these like... Let's slap a bunch of acquisitions together and try to boost the top line. Okay, sure. A lot of successful software companies do that, and it works. I own a few, so I'm not going to bash that. But the problem is here is that they grew the top line all this way, but diluted the business so much through these additional offerings uh and EBITDA like from a net income perspective it has gone nowhere so revenue in fiscal 18 went from 9.1 million fiscal 20 is about 48 million and the 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 revenue estimates for 2022 are 120 million but net income actually decreases and on a diluted earnings per share it's a joke because they're diluting the business so much and this mismatch and really confusing story that this business is creating is really suspicious to me and I am early on my understanding of what's going on with this company but I didn't like what I saw based on the last episode talking about this business. And now I'm really concerned. And Simon, we saw some just shocking stuff on the internet today. And it seems like the company is very good at selling a mission statement. But what is the mission? I can't figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure either. And to me, like I was, it was not an investment like in a, in a company I was interested in invest uh, in even last week when we talked about it and we did some research. And I think the biggest reason for that was it's getting into a field that there's much larger players like we had mentioned. And I was having trouble to see how they would even grow that quickly in the Canadian telemedicine market, even less worldwide. Um, and now that we're looking into this, my biggest concern and the biggest red flags uh, with everything that you mentioned, but also just looking at this and just kind of asking myself like, okay, are they just kind of acquiring whatever seems to be the hot 
kind of trend right now because it really sounds like it and they don't seem to have a focus on really what they're trying to do going from yoga apparel then purchasing clinics and then all of a sudden like oh let's do telemedicine okay well you know try to compete with maple and dialogue first of all in canada so let's see how you do and then we'll talk and i don't think they'll do that well there and i know like you know people can say oh simone's teledoc and of course he's not gonna like competitors and i'm actually pretty interested in seeing what dialogue and maple do well health i mean i don't uh, i really don't see the investment thesis there and just to give you an idea teledoc was founded in 2002 They've always been in telemedicine. They went public five years ago. Granted, they're trading at a rich multiple, that's for sure. But they are growing quickly, and they've always been in that space. That's been their focus from the get-go. So that's already a huge difference where WellHealth seems to be flip-flopping all over the place. Like, I don't know, two years from now, maybe next year they'll get into uh, Bitcoin trading, uh, Braden. Who knows? Yeah, right? what, whatever. whatever's hot. <laughs> whatever's hot, they're going to you know, convince investors that it's a good idea to give them more capital and then go make these silly acquisitions. Here's here's the bottom line. Last episode, we were talking about how not looking at the backstory, which I find very important to me, is like, okay, what's what's the backstory of this company? Without even knowing any of that, we came to the conclusion with, okay, uh, it owns these healthcare clinics in Vancouver, in Vancouver but like what what is the why does demand a 40 times sales multiple for a, a company that's very local to Vancouver right it, it doesn't it doesn't check off those two boxes which is if it is truly software it should have high gross margins and we we said nope does not resemble software gross margins because the business is actually in person clinics okay sure doesn't meet that check and two it's not scalable at all uh and can't go you know outside these borders doesn't meet that check so why is it trading at this price and then we dig into this it's just really really confusing so here's the bottom line i hope i'm wrong i hope i'm completely wrong i don't think i am but i hope i'm wrong i hope that you know this new ceo figures it out they make some awesome acquisitions as they continue to do in uh, in their digital health segment. And, you know, it goes to 10 billion in market cap and and everyone does well. And that's great. I hope that's, uh, I'll I'll sit on the sidelines for all of it, but I hope, I hope that happens. I just don't think it will because something is fishy here. I encourage if you're listening to this and you're a shareholder, just dig into this. The re- just do a little bit of research on the backstory. There's something going on here, and I, I can't pinpoint it. And so Simon and I are going to continue to to monitor it. But you know, we are very, very optimistic investors on this show. This is the first time ever we've come out with like, what is going on here? This is like, is this a short target? Like this. Is, so we pretty much go on every single pitch. We go long, but this this one's really strange. So. We're a little off, but by that, um, Simon, we're going to talk about our investing process. We're going to talk about what we do. This has been a question that we get all the time. I get all the time and we haven't really formally talked about on the podcast is what is your idea generation 
process in terms of, you know, the stock market, you can have decision paralysis. There's so many options. There's so many great companies. Uh, Where do you start? And then how do you go from idea generation to starting a position? So I'll, I'll let you take a crack at this one first. Yeah, no problem. So um, I'm for me, I think we're a little different in terms of where we start. And I don't think there is a really right or wrong uh, approach to this. So I'm not a big user of screeners, to be honest. Uh, usually the main thing I do when I use screeners is I use them if I want to. I'm interested in like finding some nice small cap stocks. Um, so I'll usually use screeners for that. So I'll, uh, I'll screen for under uh, usually 1.5 billion. That's uh, the one I use. And then I'll look for increasing sales. I about 15% a clip or more per year. And I want to see a positive cash flow or very close to it, trending to uh, to be positive. Earnings, I'm not as concerned when I look at uh, small cap stocks. For everything else, typically what I'll do is I'll kind of just be on the lookout, whether I'm you know, looking at uh, different YouTube videos, reading articles, just things that I use in my everyday life as well, other podcasts. I'll try to get ideas like that. And then obviously sometimes other podcasts, you'll get a bit of a breakdown of business that might pique my curiosity. And then I'll start digging more on my own and do some more research. So that's the way I do it. Maybe it's, you can probably uh, call it a bit like Peter Lynch, I would say, in terms of, uh, of strategy and just kind of getting to to find walk into the food court and then yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) the old peter lynch uh, window shopping at the mall for stocks to buy not not things to buy yeah i mean it's uh, one of the reasons why i I own apple right it's because i use their products i think it's really sticky um so that's that's the the approach i use i'm not a big screen guy in terms of finding companies but it shouldn't really matter whether you use screens or use an approach a bit more like me uh it doesn't matter you're just using that approach to find a business once you've found a business that is uh, intriguing to you then um what i'll the first thing i'll try to do is i'll kind of go on their website and just look around just see what they're selling look at their mission statement about us um, if it's a read i'll try to see where their various facilities are um, but if they're offering products i'll try to look at the different products sometimes i'll even look at uh, some of the reviews on youtube online just to see get a sense if uh, people really like their products and how sticky it is um, i also like to uh, dig in a bit more and i think you know that uh, i like to listen to earnings calls more than i like to uh, to read in the nitty-gritty of um, the uh, actual like annual statement I do enjoy like hearing the tone of voice and so on from the the CEO and the, the senior management team um, so I'll listen at least to two earning calls but oftentimes I'll do at least um, my average is probably five and I want to do at least uh, a couple of annual calls but also some quarterly some more recent quarterly calls um, I like to look at Glassdoor just to see how the employees rate their CEOs uh, because I think that's something that's really un- underrated uh, like taking care of your workforce and having happy employees I think goes a really really long way and um, that's even more true when you look at tech companies because um, there's really a big fight in terms of talent so if you're looking at a tech company you want to see a high CEO rating Um, 
I also want to make sure, and that probably goes back to the well help, I want to make sure the CEO has a really good long-term vision and is not making short-term moves. So right there, I think well help would be right off the bat. <laughs> I would just stop right there because uh, there's clearly a lack of vision. I don't know if that new CEO has a, a better vision, um, but that is something that I really look for and I want to see a consistent long-term vision. If there's constant flip-flopping, that's a big red flag because uh, I really don't know what to expect from the company then. Um, I'll read very thoroughly the uh, management discussion and that analysis. That's really, really important for me. Uh, and obviously then I'll start digging to the, uh, the financial data, so the financial statements. Uh, make sure you look at the, the footnotes oftentimes when you read the financial statement because uh, that's where you find some of the best information, uh, especially when it comes to debt. You'll have more details about how it's laid out, the interest rates and so on. Um, and one last thing I do like to look look at is the supplemental financial data, um, especially for REITs. I've mentioned that before, but it's a great resource for REITs because uh, most REITs will actually break down uh, FFO, so funds from operations and adjusted from, from operations there. So you don't have to calculate it yourself. So um, those are kind of an overview. I, obviously, I look at other things and I actually even have a, a, a spreadsheet where I have different ratio that I want to look at. I'll look at the market cap and all these different things. I have about like 25, 30 lines. And I always like on when I'm looking at a business and I'm really thinking of starting a position, I also have a kind of small paragraph of investment thesis for the business. And I save that and that whole spreadsheet that I have with the various ratios that I look at, I save it so that way I can look at it a year later when they do their next annual uh, call and just to make sure that the the full investment thesis doesn't change because it's really easy to forget right so you kind of get back into that mindset so yeah i know it's a lot of info all at once and obviously i look at other things but that's kind of the the mindset that that i use when i look at a company i like that you brought up glass door ratings because that is now part of the stratosphere score uh is <laughs> do they have I do. I use it for every company now. Yeah. Um, is do they have good ratings and do they have good management ratings? And out of curiosity, I just had to look. Uh, well Health, they actually have pretty good glass door ratings, 87% per percent, uh, CEO approval. If if I have the, the company correct, Well Health. Um, oh, this might not be Well Health Technologies. Hold on. Yeah, there's Hold more. On. I think there's another well something, yeah. Only three reviews. Uh, 33, oh, yeah, not the best. Uh, <laughs> 33% would recommend to a friend. That's actually the one that I look at the most, um, is that stat. 33% would recommend. Uh, ooh, uh, it's not It's not. Great. It's not looking pretty good. There's not a lot of reviews, uh, but not looking great. Anyway, so... Compared... Hey, I was just going to compare quick. So I was, uh, I Googled uh, Teladoc Glassdoor, 95% approval for their CEO and 71% would recommend to a friend. So see, that's very can, different. That's yeah, double. You can see the contrast. <laughs> that is double. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, this is very, very small sample size on Glassdoor for well health. But I mean, you can get a pretty good idea. I, I do like using that as well. So for me, um, it's quite a lot different i'm not gonna lie so i do start with screeners typically unless it's an idea that i just 
have come across, which happens all the time, um, and it can go on my watch list, and I've never even seen it in a screen ever. That does happen. But as an analytical guy, I am an engineer. I am a math nerd. So naturally, I'm drawn to numbers. So it helps me avoid mistakes if I can screen for some characteristics and start fishing in a pond that I think already has a lot of fish, uh, a lot of good quality fish for a long time to come. And that comes with safe balance sheets. It's growing. Uh, The business has, you know, X, Y, and Z characteristics. And if I have a list of, you know, 20 to 30 companies that I want to dive into, that's a good start for me. And and I'll run all kinds of screens. And you'll notice the same names come up over and over again. And that's typically a time to, to do some research. But screening for stocks is just the starting point. And you want to be very careful about how you're screening. When I started investing eight years ago, I screened for stocks with low price-to-earnings ratios. Don't do this. This is a bad idea. Typically, if you screen for stocks that have low PEs, you're going to find cyclicals, you're going to find banks, and you're going to find a bunch of companies that the market really doesn't like. And guess what? The market's right more often than not. More on on a long term, more often than not. So don't start with that. That's a little tidbit. <laughs> start with things that matter, like revenue growth, like free cash flow, like their balance sheet being safe. You know, having reasonable total debt to equity, high current ratios. You know, have cash on the balance sheet. These kinds of things. And then maybe if you want to have upper limits, like I don't like. I'm not saying I'd do this, but say you don't want to buy stocks that have PEs of over 50, sure, you can go ahead and do that. Don't start a PE of less than 15. I mean, you can read the intelligent investor and be like, oh, Ben Graham buys stocks under 50, you know, PE 15. Don't do that. Um, okay, so once I've screened for a list of businesses, by the way, Stratosphere has a stock screener. It's really powerful. Go ahead and check it out. Um, so once, once I've gone there, I, I'm, I'm doing the same kind of things you are. I'm going to their website. I'm going to their investor relations. I'm reading an annual report. I'm looking at various different articles about the business. I'm checking to see if there's podcasts about it. Some of my favorite writers on Twitter, see if they've done any, any deep dives and try to understand what the moat is if it exists. So I don't want to go on too big of a tangent here, but my framework is is pretty simple. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just skim through it quick. I want proven top line and free uh, top lines like revenue and free cash flow growth rates. I want high reinvestment opportunities, so high return on invested capital or, or return on equity. I want to see those over fifteen percent. So that that might those are typical things that I'll screen for. You know. Businesses that have durable, long-term, high return on invested capital produce value for shareholders. So that would be a good thing to screen for. Um, And then there's qualitative stuff. Like, are they in a secular trend? Are they atop a global growth sector? Are they scalable? Do they have high gross margins? Well, health, no. 
doesn't doesn't check check that box. They have a conservative capital structure. All right, here's the one. If you listen to this podcast, you know I'm so keen on. This is part of my checklist, which goes into the stratosphere score, by the way, is do they have pricing power? If they don't have pricing power, I'm done. It's that's it. It's it's instantly thrown into a pile that I just call too hard to figure out. There's lots of commodity businesses that do well. And most of them don't. That's just that's just proven long term uh, factor that it is very hard to create value when you are in such a competitive commoditized product. And that's just like a, a, a check for me is do they have durable pricing power? And if they don't, the moat's going to be non-existent or very small. Uh, so that's, that's another thing. Do they have network effects? Uh, you know, does the use, does this product getting used more compound on itself? That those are network effects. Like think of social media as having network effects. Think of Visa and MasterCard as having network effects. The more people who accept the cards, the more people who are going to become users of the card. And the more people who have, are users of the card are now going to create more vendors, merchants accepting the card. Next thing you know, a couple iterations of that and you have these global businesses with really, really sticky rails that Visa and MasterCard have built. And that's why I talked about it earlier in this podcast is... The fact that I always, you know, on the other side of, of the Bitcoin bulls, I don't, I'm, I'm still not there yet, right? But the fact that an ecosystem is being created for it to be accepted and used is creating actually network effects in its utilization, which is important and that matters. So that's, that's, that's important. And then very lastly, a properly incentivized management team, Charlie Munger, co-chair of Berkshire Hathaway, always says, follow the incentives. If incentives are aligned, it'll probably make sense. Is the management team being incentivized to grow earnings per share? If so, then they might do wrong capital allocation decisions. This is just an example. They might make wrong capital allocation decisions because their metric that they're being tracked on is earnings per share. Now, I can go ahead and buy back a bunch of stock and boost earnings per share without actually growing earnings. So that might incentivize the wrong capital allocation decision because of their incentives. So again, if you're incentivized by earnings per share and I can buy back stock to meet my target without actually doing anything to make the business better, then I've met my target when that may have not been the right capital allocation decision for the business long-term. So these are all kinds of things. Again, this is listed on, on Stratosphere, my, my full investment philosophy and framework. So that's, that's where I go. I'm very, very analytical. So that's where I start, Simon. Yeah, no, and those are all things I, I look at as well. Um, you definitely went into to more detail than I did. And uh, the management incentive structure is really important because if it's really out of whack, um, it, 
like in some cases and can really create like such an incentive that um, we've seen fraud in the past because management wanted to boost those numbers. So that's uh, obviously that doesn't happen that often, but that's really something that's important to look at. Um, but like I said, I, I'm big into numbers too, but I have an approach to um, one thing that I didn't mention that I like to invest in is I also want to invest into businesses that I believe will make the world better. And that's just a personal philosophy. And I know we've had questions about investing in oil, and that's fine if that's what you want to do. Everyone has their own investing philosophy. And Braden mentioned he uses screeners a lot, um, and that's fine. That's a way to look at it. Um, I think it's you can get different ways to get started, um, but there are things you really should be looking at. And some of the things we mentioned are really important. But uh, for me, uh, the last big thing I look at is, does that company make, in my view, the world a better place? So that's why I've been staying, steering away like in the past couple of years of oil stocks. That's just a personal belief. And I'm uh, you know, there's probably a lot of value plays in that right now, but that's uh, that's one of the things that I look at. And if I don't think they are making the world a better place, um, then I just uh, will just not invest into them. Um, whatever the uh, you know, however good it might look on paper, and no matter how much cash they're generating whatsoever, um, it's just yeah. If I can't believe in the business in terms of making the world a better place, I won't invest in it. Yeah, that comes down to two, right? Is you're you're looking at something like that and seeing in your own lifetime a potential terminal value of zero. So, like, how do you model that out, right? Like, if you if you if you think the terminal value potentially in your lifetime is is zero, then it's really hard to back that long term as an investment. Yeah, yeah and um, I like I don't know about yeah. you, but um, I personally would not be able to invest in tobacco companies. That's just my personal belief. I would not be able to invest in them, no matter how attractive the valuation is. Can't go for a, a quick dart. Come no, on, no, Simon. I- <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Uh, we have a we have a uh, question from uh, the audience. So this was on the anchor link that we send out. That we, that we broadcast, you can go on there and record a voice message, an actual question. So our first question from Thomas Davidson Park, great guy, I've met him, absolute beauty. Uh, here's his voice message. Yeah, hi, gentlemen. Uh, my name's Thomas. I had a question regarding uh, Tencent, which I know you guys have talked a lot about. Um, the fact that it's an over-the-counter uh, stock, um, is that to provide any additional risks. I know you touched briefly on the fact it's a Chinese stock, but the fact that it's not even listed on uh, one of the like leading exchanges, I guess. Um, yeah, just wondering about that. Thank you. Okay, so the, yeah, that's a great question in terms of uh, is Tencent a risky play or how does it affect the uh, the investment thesis because Tencent is listed on the uh, over-the-counter market? So the way I see it, it's not necessarily a bad thing for ten- Tencent. And I know Braden and I discussed this and he'll go into detail as well. Uh, really good question. Um, so over-the-counter, it's really important to know that not all companies are created equal when it comes to over-the-counter. So as a general rule, over-the-counter can be risky. Uh, the main reason behind that is it's not as regulated 
it as the big exchanges like the uh, New York Stock Exchange, the TSX, the NASDAQ. Obviously, there's some other uh, big exchanges as well. Um, it's typically less expensive for companies to list on these exchanges. So the fees are way smaller than the big exchanges. So that creates an incentive, especially for smaller companies to, to go on there. Um, problem is a lot of these companies are poorly run uh, some are like borderline scams um, they also are there's a lot of penny stocks there are a lot of companies actually get delisted because they do not meet the requirements from the major stock exchanges um, and that's actually one of the reasons why you'll see the um, uh, the reverse split so you'll have companies uh, for example I think Aurora Cannabis did that is they uh, did a reverse split uh, maybe six months ago because their price was getting too low um, that's never a good idea because they're trying to, to basically stay on the exchange so for every 10 shares that you have they give you back one because they want to jack up the price of the share you still have the same percentage of the company but it's a way for them to try and stay on the exchange that's usually the reason behind it um, a lot of one of the biggest risks for uh, a lot of these companies is the liquidity so liquidity will typically be much lower and I say typically because there are some exceptions to that like a Tencent like a Nintendo like a Nestle those are all over the counter and you'll notice that these are all foreign companies that are listed over the counter um, so for those companies I don't think it's a really an additional risk uh, to have them over the counter because they're really established companies um, for a specific question for Tencent I mean there is the added risk like you said of uh, being listed in China so that is a risk in itself but I don't think uh, the fact that it's OTC really makes much of a difference because it's such a, such a large company and I would say the same thing about Nintendo or Nestle for example and those are just three there are some other bigger companies that are listed most of the big ones are actually uh, foreign companies I think that was really well put by the way but I think the first thing you said uh, sums it up is not all OTC stocks, over-the-counter listed stocks, are created equal. You can get penny stock fraud f to, you know, 780 US dollar, billion dollar market cap, 10 cent, like your, like your question. Uh, so everything in, and everything in between, right? So here's why in 10 cents specific example that it doesn't really matter and the reason for that is currently u.s listed chinese stocks like alibaba jd.com these these big behemoth uh, companies in china that are listed on u.s exchanges so they're not over the counter they're actually listed on u.s exchanges because they want access to capital markets here uh, in North America. So they do that. Now, Chinese, the Chinese government in mainland China does not let U.S. auditors audit their books. So two days ago, the SEC has come up with this plan um, and it's going to be in limbo with the U.S. election. Like, who really knows if, if they're going to actually execute on this and, and bring it forward and, and really care about it? Um, of basically, they have to they have to change that if they want to be listed. So there's been all this talks about U.S. stocks being delisted if the 
Chinese Communist Party doesn't agree to what the SEC is putting out, which is that they need to be able to audit them. And I think this is a completely fair request. The rest of the world, you know, agrees to these fair auditing agreements. So why is it any different? Anyways, that's a, that's a topic for another another time. So when it comes to Chinese stocks, like Tencent, is the protection of them being listed on an exchange, uh, you know, having that legitimacy doesn't mean anything because even the big actual listed stocks like JD.com, like Alibaba, those companies are still not audited to by U.S. auditors. And that's why you get people who just go, I don't trust it. I'm not investing them at all. And I get, I get that side of the argument. I completely understand why. So in this exact scenario and your question, my, my short answer is it doesn't really matter, but not for a good reason, <laughs> right? Like not for a particularly good reason that it doesn't matter. It's actually a bad reason that it doesn't matter because we lack transparency across even if it wasn't over the counter and say they listed on the NASDAQ, nothing would change in terms of transparency. Uh, so the short answer is it doesn't matter for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> um, that does it for this week, guys. Thank you guys so much for listening. It's been great support lately. Uh, GetStockMarket.com and you can go on stratosphere so this is the canadian investor podcast and i finally have memberships in canadian dollars i apologize to everyone who's like i don't want to pay in u.s dollars sure that's fine uh it's in canadian dollars now at the exact same price as the u.s dollar listing so now it's a sweet deal now it's a great deal but i i feel very uh good about you know doing this for all the, the canadian investor pod listeners so get smart get stockmarket.com we'll bring you there we'll see you guys next week bye-bye the canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice Braden or simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions